Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Hi, welcome back. Uh, I'm here today to follow up on the conversations we've begun about trade and discussions about trade have led to our, uh, led, those roads have led to China. And today we're here to talk about trade and China. And with me to do this are two very smart men, Herman Perchner and uh, Riley Walters. Herman is the founder in 1982 of the uh, American Foreign Policy Council. Uh, he has traveled to uh, China annually since 1994. Uh, he's been to Russia more than 65 times. He advises presidents, uh, uh, heads of state all over the world. Interestingly, his, his uh, organization takes donations only from American citizens and U.S. entities. So, welcome. Bill, pleasure to be with you. Riley is a policy analyst in, for Asian Economy and Technology at the Heritage Foundation Asian Studies Center. He specializes in Northeast Asian macroeconomic issues, as well as emerging technologies and cybersecurity. Thank you. Well, we have two men that know a lot about this topic. Welcome, welcome. Herman, you just came back from China. Yeah, I was in China in December. And uh, two main takeaways I had, Bill. Uh, first, attitudes have changed markedly on North Korea. And I think the Chinese leadership has turned sour on the Kim regime. Uh, it's less clear uh, what that will mean in terms of policy changes in China. My sense is that's still being debated inside uh, closed rooms in Beijing. Uh, second takeaway has to do with uh, the growing uh, social control over religion, over social media, over anything that's not uh, directly under the thumb of the Communist Party. It's a trend that began under Xi and is accelerating in recent years. I understand they have a facial recognition technology where they can round people up within an hour. Is that is that factual or is that I don't know about an hour, but they have uh, facial recognition, and it's everywhere. So it's uh, it's a means of greater control for sure. And it's Riley, jump in. Uh, it's so everywhere that even public restaurant restrooms have facial recognition to allow you to only take out so much free toilet paper per day. It, it recognizes your face and knows you came to this park today and you've already taken two squares. And then tomorrow you can have another two squares. <laughs> you mean the extra water bottle I take from my gym is going to be surveilled pretty soon? They'll know. <laughs> Do they have cameras in each one of these? Uh, I don't know. I'm sure it's different. Uh, I, I think it was a, more of a introductory project. I'm not saying every public restroom has this, uh, but it's it's part of China's Made in 2025, uh, where they want to become sort of the the next global technology leader. Uh, you know, beating out Silicon Valley, beating out Japan, beating out South Korea. They want to be the place for technology, I think. Well, we've had, uh, we've had discussions on this show about just how free trade-oriented China is and whether it's really a command and control economy disguised as a, as a, as a market economy. And we had a lively debate. Somebody, when I said they were mercantilists, said that was just utter nonsense. Mm -hmm. Do you have a view uh, about that? I would say that... Uh, the economic freedom or trade freedom that you would see in China, I think it ebbs and flows, right? So I would say that since China joined the WTO back in the 90s, there has been an opening of China's market. 
but perhaps uh, Herman can talk more about this under Xi's leadership. There's been perhaps a constraining of it through either the um, uh, subjugation of minorities and religious freedom, as well as uh, trying to maintain state control of uh, state-owned enterprises and trade and investment aspects. She now thinks that the communist uh, cells that exist in companies will have a say in how private companies make their decisions and personnel matters. So what you have is the growing pervasiveness of the state. I think you have, are not going to see the privatization of the big state enterprises. They may mm -hmm. become more important under Xi, even though it's less efficient. The, uh, about 50% of the significant companies in, in China are state-owned? Yes. And I, as I understand it, they've allowed even the entrepreneurs that aren't in the state-owned companies to join the Communist Party, or maybe they've required them to join the Communist Party. To what extent is that shaping industrial policy or whatever? In communist societies, usually around 5% uh, of the population join the party, and party membership is a prerequisite to management uh, positions uh, across the board. I mean, if you are a totally brilliant scientist, they'll let you be a scientist. But in general, if you're going to run something, you have to be part of the party. And being part of the party means attending party meetings, receiving education as to the party line, and, and, uh, and to accept party discipline. Hmm. And if you're not a company who has a party member, you are required to have a party member, a part of your board of directors or senior management. So it's, it's a requirement that party party China's Communist Party is a part of your company, essentially. Yeah. So trade is much in everybody's mind now as we speak. We've just had some talk about steel and aluminum tariffs slapped on, on uh, imports, 25% on steel and 10% on aluminum. And I think this is just like hit, shooting ourselves in the, in the foot or in the head or whatever metaphor you want to use. I mean, we, do we really need tariffs on steel imported from Vietnam or, or Venezuela or Hong Kong? I don't know. Or South Korea, Japan. Or South Korea. Canada, our allies. <laughs> Canada. I mean, Canada is a great example. If yeah. you look at the aluminum industry, I think if you, if you take it together, we're strategically uh, protected for years with the amount of aluminum we make together. Mm -hmm. So the idea that this is a strategic threat, that we're importing right. aluminum, is... Uh, is nonsense. All right. Well, uh, so, uh, you know, last year the president asked the Commerce Department to investigate uh, based on the authority given to them in legislation to review whether the uh, steel industry and aluminum industry are at threat, essentially. And um, the report that was released publicly, graciously, usually these reports aren't always released before the decision is made. Um, lays out their national security concerns. And to be frank, they're bogus. Um, certainly, there, it, there's the national security argument is bad. The economic security argument is bad. Um, to say that you know these industries are at threat when the Department of Defense only uses 3% of steel made in America for their needs, and that for some reason our allies, who we would rely on in war, can't actually support us uh, is 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 bogus. Um, also, they they did they talk about the steel industry, but they don't talk about the overall macroeconomic effect of these imports. 
there's been a couple of studies that come out that say the U.S. could net loss 146,000 jobs. Uh, by one, uh, another study said at least 90,000 in manufacturing alone. So, well, the Bush tax or the Bush tariffs in 2002 cost about 200,000 jobs. Yeah, and somebody has pointed out that for every one job we've got in a steel company, there's 16 jobs in companies that use steel. So, yeah. I have a question for Riley. I don't know too much about trade. I'm more expert on geopolitics, but I've heard it argued that uh, making this announcement on tariffs is really the opening of the negotiation to have a more level playing field. Is there any truth in this argument? That's one of the things I've heard. Um, it, it kind of seems like every week the narrative around 232 kind of changes. At, at first 232 it was, means? Uh, sorry, 232 is the uh, investigation done by the Commerce Department. It is what the tr uh, president would use to assign these tariffs. It was the document that Trump got to say, is, we had to slap these tariffs yes. on because it's strategically important. Correct. It meant he could do it without congressional approval. Correct. Ah. It gives him, Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of the 1960s grants him explicit authority to go around Congress and implement these taxes on steel imports. Um, so I was, as I was, I was saying, uh, the narrative seems to change every week. At first, it was leveling the playing field with China. Then there were national security concerns, since that is what the legislation is meant to address, um, the 232 legislation, not any new legislation. Um, then it, now I hear things that it's perhaps a negotiating tactic for NAFTA. It's not, it doesn't really have anything to do with China. It's not leveling the playing field with China. It's now it's leveling the playing field with Mexico and Canada. So. Every week, it's a new target. Well I, well, I hope it's something like that, because otherwise it looks like we've got four old guys in their 70s and 80s who think the next war we're going to fight is World War II. Because <laughs> the, 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 the manufacturing industries that count are all the high-tech industries, yeah. which is where China's yeah. concentrating but, its resources. Well, I know you don't think being in your 70s is old. <laughs> Not, no, I'm close to thinking that's young. <laughs> <laughs> Very close. <laughs> <laughs> but, but at least we don't think the next war we're going to fight is World War II. <laughs> well, what about the geo, geopolitical implications of this? I'm looking at a chart that was in a journal today. Greg Ip put something together that's something that, like, China's now gone from, um, like, 10% of the steel produced in the world to 50% of the steel in the world for strategic reasons, and, and my libertarian friends say they foolishly continue to build new aluminum uh, smelter capacity, even though it has no cost advantage. And by basically selling aluminum below cost, they're giving it away to U.S. consumers, subsidizing Americans who drink beer uh, from an aluminum can. I mean, is that, or the libertarian, is it? Well, you have, uh, and uh, Riley's more the economists, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they have overcapacity for sure, uh, not just in aluminum and steel, but other industries. Uh, but they look at state-run enterprises as a way of keeping people employed, which they need to do, mm -hmm. and uh, they will spend uh, some of this overcapacity in building out uh, the Silk Road Initiative, as well as infrastructure projects in China and other places, and they think this uh, serves a, a strategic aim, too, of spreading Chinese political influence as well as... Uh, uh, doing it for economic reasons. And the Silk Road Initiative, I've, that, that is, I've also, there's also the One Belt, One Road Initiative. Is that the same thing? Or is that the same thing? Yeah. What is that? They're 
Riley? Yeah, uh, yeah. So um, it goes by several names. Uh, the Silk Road is uh, from the history of China. It, the uh, ancient trade routes it would take sure. through yeah. Central Asia to um, Europe. Uh, Spice it, trade, silk trade. Yeah, yeah, whole, Silk Road. So very exotic, very historic, very interesting. The Chinese, uh, the, the current uh, administration in China uh, is seeking to build sort of a Silk Road 2.0. Uh, this means uh, increasing transportation, both by land and by sea, to all over the world. Name a place they're trying to create a means of transportation to that area. Um, one, it was originally called the uh, One Belt, One Road when it first came out. Mm -hmm. um, the Chinese have since changed that for PR purposes because One Belt, One Road, One China is a bit... Uh, Exclusive sounding. It's all pretty aggressive. Right, exactly. I think actually in Chinese, it's still the same. Uh, the, the Chinese term for One Belt, One Road, or as it's called now in English, the Belt Road Initiative. They just took out the one, one. Um, it, it's still the same, but for PR purposes, for selling it to Americans or uh, you know Eastern European countries or Western European countries, um, uh, it's now the Belt Road Initiative. And it means... Anyone can join. It's well, Herman. Yeah. Is this uh, is this for commercial purposes or is this for geostrategic purposes? Uh, it, no, it, I know they've built. They've they've basically purchased the port of Piraeus mm -hmm. in Greece, and they want to make that the largest yeah. deep water port well, in uh, in Europe. The answer is it's it's both, and uh, I think Riley uh, made a good comment. It's not just one belt and one road. There are many trade routes. If you see. Uh, a map of them, it's uh, like spaghetti <laughs> uh, with uh, all kinds of different routes. I think the Chinese uh, see uh, the following advantages. One, they can tie in some of these developing economies permanently to the Chinese economy, so they have customers that will be there for generations. I think they uh, see it as a way of getting uh, influence if they have big infrastructure projects. Uh, they get UN votes along with it. They're using uh, Greece, which you mentioned uh, uh, in uh, particular, to try to break up uh, European unity regarding uh, policy towards China. They invest so much in Greece, they expect to have uh, Greece uh, advance pro-Chinese positions. The uh, the Europeans are being getting a little alarmed, though. They've been buying up a lot of infrastructure in Europe and. The EU Commissioner, European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, yeah. um, they're now examining these purchases. That they say, if they want to buy a harbor or part of our infra infrastructure or defense technology firm, we want to look at this a lot closer. Which is what we're doing in the United States with CFIUS. Uh, CFIUS means CFIUS is an acronym. C F I U S. Uh, it stands for the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. It's a multi-agency committee that reviews foreign investment for national security concerns. Yeah. Um, and you're right. And the, it's, in, it's lodged in the Treasury Department. It is chairs by the Treasury Department, Okay, yes, right, yes. right. But, you know, using uh, ports for strategic uh, reasons isn't anything new. Hutchinson Wampoa, a major Chinese company with ties to their defense ministry, operates the ports on the Panama Canal. Now... Things will be normal as long as there's no crisis in Taiwan. If there's ever a shooting war in Taiwan, will American ships have access to the canal? I doubt it. 
Well, the question I keep asking me is that I come to things as a visceral free trader, libertarian, let's yeah. let people innovate, create businesses, compete worldwide, don't have any barriers. Yet China doesn't seem to be playing with that rule book. It seems like they're playing very much within the mercantile model, which is where they see this is not necessary. They don't need a return on investment. They're willing to invest to get a strategic foothold in, in not only uh, infrastructure, ports and things like that, but also technology in particular. They're really pushing. And raw materials. When they wanted to teach Japan a lesson, they withheld rare earth minerals, uh, which uh, they have a near monopoly on. And I think in the mind of the Chinese politicians, uh, the, the price of uh, any good is not just economically determined, but you can add a political surcharge on it to uh, score points on the political side, not just in your bank account. Hmm. For the, um, so there's, there's actually, you're right, there's a, there's a bit of a division in the European community since the EU has both very advanced economies and still similarly developing economies. And the approach that the Chinese have been taking and the response by individual European countries is very divided between those countries who are poor who would like capital invested in their countries versus those economies like Germany who are very advanced and are skeptical of the security implications of uh, companies like China buying up say they're you know the number one robotics manufacturer which Germany used to have uh, and what that means for both the, the future of Germany uh, economically and security wise we run about a 375 billion dollar although I think Donald Trump told us recently it was $500 billion, but mm -hmm. I don't know if that was just to make it huger or not. But uh, does that matter, $500 million trade deficits with, with China? No. No? Herman? I think our cumulative trade deficit is not sustainable over the long run. And I'm less concerned about an individual country than the, the total amount. I uh, I am less worried about the uh, trade deficit than I am perhaps um, Chinese ownership of U.S. securities. Now I think there's there's not as big a threat I think from either one. Ownership of U.S. securities meaning ownership of U.S. firms or no no uh, bonds and securities. So like okay. during after the financial crisis, the uh, Fed issued quantitative easing, which sold Treasury. Uh, securities and bonds, which were purchased by foreign companies and things but like that. But I, I could be, I'm not totally current on this, but I thought their ownership of those securities has dropped pretty substantially, yes. and instead they've shifted their purchases to real companies, which brings us back to the CFIUS, where they're yeah. trying to yeah. acquire actual companies in the United States. Yeah. Um, but even that wouldn't count for the trade deficit, though. Yeah. If anything, that would actually change it. Uh, typically, the, the correlation between trade and investment is that a company, the, say a Japanese company, invests in an American company to export back to Japan, or vice versa. Say an American company will invest in China to invest and export back to the United States. So uh, the trade deficit, I think, there's no uh, real security concern, I think. There's, there's no way that China tomorrow can say, we have a deficit in trade and you owe us essentially. Um, I'm not so much worried about the, the financial implications. I, well, the thing that concerns me is that I think a nation's strength is its productive capacity. Mm. 
And we've had leadership in manufacturing and technology, information, uh, uh, you know, internet, all that. We've, we've been a leader there, and our productive capacity is such that that gives us a lot of strength as a country strategically. And we've already seen a lot of the manufacturing hollowed out in the, in the, in the sunset industries, and I think they are. But that's not what China is interested in. I mean, they want to be a leader. This is their 2025 strategy. They want to be a leader in semiconductors, computers, software, biotech, pharmaceuticals, electric cars, batteries, robotics, drones, virtual reality, artificial intelligence. They're on record as saying, and 2025 is only seven years from now. <laughs> Herman, is this, is this well, rhetoric or is this, are they, are they executing the China, on this I strategy? I think the Chinese are highly ambitious, uh -huh. and they wish to extend their hard and soft power worldwide. And I don't see anything they've done that runs contrary to that uh, motive. Um, you, and they're very long range in their projections. For instance, we sponsored a book uh, well reviewed by the Financial Times a few years ago, China and Africa. And we took a look at uh, what the Chinese state companies were doing there. And essentially, the Chinese government said, all right, it's in our national interest to tie up all the mineral wealth, all the petroleum assets that we can, mm -hmm. and uh, state company, um, what do you need to do that? Do you need bribes? No Foreign Corrupt Practices Act uh, governs Chinese companies. Do you need infrastructure pro uh, 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 <coughs> projects? Do you need uh, uh, military sales? Whatever you need, you have. Just tie it up. And they've done that. And uh, But with uh, controlling the these raw materials, they're also buying political influence. And if you watch votes in the UN and the foreign policy of some African countries that have heavy Chinese investment. You see that. Well, doesn't our doesn't America's sort of visceral free trade philosophy uh, doesn't that leave us extremely vulnerable to them? Riley's written on uh, an example of a company that where they stole something like eight hundred billion dollars of. Uh, uh, not a, got, that number's got to be not a, not a specific company. No. Okay. Uh, this so is, what, tell this us is, tell us about that and what uh, what we ought to know. You're talking about intellectual property theft, and yeah. so the Commission on Intellectual Property Theft uh, estimates that annually uh, up to 600 billion annually 600 billion worth of um, wealth is lost from the United States through intellectual property theft or uh, transfer of uh, you know, perhaps not like patents exactly, but technical know-how, uh, best practices, things of that sort. Um, a significant chunk of which is done by the Chinese. And how uh, does that how does that happen? I mean, what 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 is the what's the trade? I mean, if you're uh, well, it it could come from anything from um, cyber theft, which yeah. is a big proponent. Um, there's also uh, either forced transfer or coerced transfer. Uh, there's a bit of a difference there. Uh, say I'm an American company and I invest in China and I develop a really st strong product, uh, and then one day the Communist Party comes in and takes it. That's forced mm -hmm. transfer. The other one is, say I have a strong product and I want to get access to the Chinese market. The Communist Party will say, well, you need to uh, give us that technology already if you want to invest here. So I'm a CEO of a multinational company. Mm -hmm. And I want to go into China, and so I go to China and with my people, and we have a meeting, and they say, well, that's great. If you want to be here, you need to give us access to your technology. Is that the way it works? Yeah. 
that happens. And Herman, you, Herman, and, you and, were. And that's correct, but it also can be more subtle. Uh, you can come in, you bring your best technology, and you have to hire as managers Chinese. Mm -hmm. And when the Chinese managers are there enough years, they figure out not, not just what's patentable or not patentable, but as uh, Riley said, tradecraft. And when they have it down, then they go out and open their own company to compete with you because right. they don't need you anymore. Or uh, you think you have a partner in China, and then based on just the, the rules that govern patent protection and how they differ in China and Japan, they can gain And they that. basically don't protect intellectual property. Essentially. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they have a certain set of rules, but you know, the courts are very um, sporadic. You know, it, it could be different for depending on uh, the, either like the state or local level and um, it, the implementation of uh, a unified property right is just yeah. non-existent. But their but their but their greatest good is well, our greatest good is the rule of law, the Constitution, mm -hmm. the you know, respecting contracts, good courts and judges and things like that. Theirs is the party, mm -hmm. and the party said we want to be the leader in all these strategic industries. So go get this technology, and we don't really, we're not going to ask any questions how you get it. Well, also the party governs all courts. Uh, there are some moves, uh, moves to make the courts more independent, but if a uh, senior party official interferes in a court case, the judge won't rule contrary to the party official. Uh, it's uh, been curbed a little bit, and now if a party official intervenes, it becomes part of the official record. And if they intervene to line their own pockets, they're in trouble. If they intervene to protect the Communist Party's interests, they may be promoted. Have you been uh, <laughs> following the whole anti-corruption campaign? Yes, carefully. Uh, yeah. how, how does that, has that? To do business in China is akin to operating a bar in a college town. Every bar owner is guilty every night. There's always somebody <laughs> underage in. So the question is, if you're going after corruption in China, whose corruption are you going to go after? Do I go after Bill Walton, who's a good friend of Xi, the head of the Communist Party of China? Or do I go after Riley, who maybe is not so friendly to Mr. Xi? You know, so it's become, it's anti-corruption. But it's, now. A, but it's oh, also a question of, of consolidation of power. So I've, I'm late to this game. I've really just become aware of some of these issues. One of the things I've been learning is that uh, if, you, if you look at their education system, yeah. they're very oriented to, towards technology. Their STEM degrees, which is what oh. uh, science, technology, engineering, and math, they're awarding 1.3 million every year, and we're, we're at like 300,000. They're very much saying, you, you want to go to college, you've got to learn something, a hard science. If you look at the political bureau, the polar bureau, which is the leading body in China, you'll find they've been disproportionately engineers. And we don't have that in this country, but they have... Wait, wait, wait. Their, their, their government is primarily engineers? China as opposed to lawyers? What a, what a committee wonderful... Of a polar, <laughs> polar which maybe yeah. it's seven people now. It's been nine. And if you look at the background of most of the people that have served there over the past couple of decades, I think you'll find they're engineers. That's fascinating. And uh, that's why, in part, they were able to... Uh, guide the industrialization because they understood it. Well, that's a totally different mindset from most of our Western politicians. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you put it. <laughs> well, it explains an awful lot, though. It also explains that they, uh, 
thinking systems and building. They're not they're not interested in in, in, in sort of letting a what is it, a thousand something bloom. They want to instead control outcomes the way engineers do. Yeah. Yes, they they like predictable outcomes. <laughs> Very much. <laughs> yeah. Now. Herman, you've, you've been to China every year since 1994. You, I think you know a lot more than you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give us an anecdote of something like that where you've seen... Uh, uh, I can't, I'm setting you up so you can't go on your next trip. All right. Finally, <laughs> you, 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 well, <laughs> anyway, well, we have, we have a few stories. You know, when I first went to China, there were more uh, bicycles and cars in Beijing yeah. and other cities. And the amount of uh, economic progress is jaw-dropping countrywide. Um, and this is how the Communist Party legitimizes its rule. The people, and including party people, worry about corruption. They don't like it. But as long as they're living better and everybody's living better, they give the party a, a lease on life, and they think the party has earned the right to continue to govern. But uh, now, with Xi, you have... Uh, uh, clamping down, maybe because they're afraid that the freedom has permitted people to go in directions that are not uh, fully under party control. And in their mind, that's akin to chaos. And if you have a country of a billion, 300, maybe 400 million people, to have things out of order is frightening, especially for those that remember the anarchical days of the Cultural Revolution, which was a, a nightmare for anybody who went through it. it was, that's that's where we get back to our where we started with the facial recognition. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, to uh, you mentioned bicycles, and it made me think of uh, the sharing economy. Yeah. And so the sharing economy is essentially this ah. uh, new idea that um, you know uh, individuals can share uh, products, capital goods. Um, it's, it's maybe better to use an example. Think of Uber. Mm -hmm. uh, Uber or Lyft or these ride-sharing cars are an aspect of the sharing economy. You can uh, call up a car, and it's not yours, but you share it with others. Um, in China and some in D.C. and other uh, states, we have uh, bike-sharing systems. Um, for D.C., I think there's maybe five or six companies that specialize in bike-sharing. Um, China is very prolific in bike-sharing, so much so that their market's actually completely saturated by it to the fact that there's an oversupply of bikes to the fact that it, it kind of makes me think of Amsterdam. And in Amsterdam, mm. uh, I, I believe they drained one of the rivers once and it was just completely littered with bicycles. <laughs> um, but I, I, I draw that analogy to kind of say that, you know, it, in uh, typically in capitalist countries, there's competition that drives out inefficiencies in China, you don't necessarily have so much of that competition. So you end up creating an oversupply of bikes when people do want bikes in China, but when you've got, I don't know, uh, there are no market like signal. 10 bikes per one person, yeah. something, I don't know if that's a real statistic, but mm -hmm. something along, along that line, you've, you create inefficiencies in your economy, and that's, that's just in bikes. You know, what do you do when you have overcapacity in steel? What do you do when you have uh, overproduction of uh, other types of uh, machinery and so on and so forth. Well, the Chinese are shifting their gaze from bikes and steel and aluminum to the high tech, and they're underwriting infrastructure, technology infrastructure, the way we might think about our own 
our trillion-dollar infrastructure program here. Yeah. You know, if you go to the best engineering programs in the U.S., you have a disproportionate number of very bright Chinese. Mm -hmm. And the shift I see coming over the next 10, 20 years is the Chinese now are establishing their own higher ed uh, in technology. And uh, they are going to create absolutely world-class engineering programs. And uh, the number of patents, I predict, that are taken uh, worldwide uh, by China is going to increase in a percent uh, uh, by a significant amount. Uh, I, think, I think if we don't do better with uh, educating people in engineering here and mathematics and hard science, it's, it's a long-term problem for us. I think China is already outranking both, you know, U.S. and Japan, two of the largest patent or countries, countries that patent the most already by yeah. maybe a factor of three or four. Yeah, but part of that is mitigated by the fact that technology is changing so fast that many of our companies in Sil Silicon Valley do not even patent anymore because yeah. by the time you go through the patent pro process, it's already old technology. Right. So I'm not sure that innovation is so disproportionately with China, uh, but uh, the trend no, no, line no. is there. I, I, I agree. I think perhaps a lot of those patents are just, uh, I don't know, I think of patent trolling, people who are just creating patents for the sake of patents. We've got a couple of minutes here to wrap up. Riley, what would you, you, you work in the area of intellectual property, theft, acquisition sure. of companies, uh, and, and that piece of the world. What would you see that we need to be focusing on now to protect American interest um, protecting our rule of law you know we've mentioned this already it's it's one of the guiding aspects and uh, to allow theft to continue theft of intellectual property I think sort of undermines that so I think we need to address the theft problem before we address any unfair trade practices and you had three steps to take. Maybe the, the Department of Commerce would set yeah. up a watch list. And what, 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 yeah, was that, uh, what was that? Uh, it, that was that? What was that punch list of things we sure, needed sure. to do? Sure, um, sure. Yeah, uh, companies can work, or the Department of Commerce can work with companies to sort of uh, non-publicly, because I know a lot of companies are sensitive about this topic. You don't want to say that <coughs> I've been a victim publicly, but they can work with the Department of Commerce to identify um, things that have been stolen or copied illegally uh, by Chinese entities and. Uh, allow the commerce to sort of create a list. Mm -hmm. And this list can uh, of either uh, companies that are known thieves of intellectual property or use products that are knowingly stole, stolen. So mm -hmm. like, you know, perhaps one Chinese company steals it, but they share it with all their other Chinese companies at the, you know, as because the party says they need to. Um, so they're all guilty, essentially. Yeah. Uh, guilty by association. Um, they create this list, and then the Treasury Department, who has the ability to sanction companies, comes in and says, look, you've stolen American property. You're not allowed to access the American financial markets anymore. Bingo. Okay. Yeah. So, Harmon. If uh, the countries of South and Southeast Asia think the U.S. will not maintain a robust military presence and will not engage actively uh, on a diplomatic front, they will accommodate to China, and it will result in long-range trade disadvantage uh, to the U.S. as we would seek to trade with traditional partners like Japan and South Korea. Um, there was a study some years ago by uh, Morris Rossaby, I think is at, at Columbia, talking about how 
uh, China uh, defeated its enemy at the time, the Mongols, through trade war. They're, they're, they have a millennia of history of dealing with these problems. And to the extent that they're able to use geopolitical uh, means to influence trade, they will do it. It's uh, worked for them in the past, and they, they have, will have confidence it will work in the future. Troubling, fascinating. Uh, we've barely scratched the surface. Uh, let's come back and talk some more about this. It's clear, though, that while we're spending all our time worrying about Russians and elections uh, and, uh, and, and actresses, uh, a lot of things are happening we should be paying far more attention to. In this case, it's China. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. There you go. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.